uh, this morning from the 17th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Please turn to this passage in your Bible. And again, if you are a visitor, we encourage you to have the scripture open in front of you for the preaching of God's word. Where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus, I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Thus reads the living and the inspired word of God. Instructive book. You remember that we have been pursuing Paul's second missionary journey as recorded in these pages, truly one of the greatest missionary journeys in the whole annals of the Christian church. And we have read how they arrived for the very first time in the continent of Europe, crossing the narrow blue waters of the Aegean Sea that separated Asia Minor from the continent of Europe and from Greece in particular. And on these past Sundays, we have been seeing how their mission to Europe opened in the northeastern Greek city of Philippi, that was also a Roman colony. And how after remarkable events there and three outstanding conversions, chosen probably from many in that city, they were finally, after a cruel beating and imprisonment, driven out once more from Philippi and forced to take the high road that led elsewhere. And thus, in our passage this morning, and God willing, next Sunday morning, we will see them arriving in Thessalonica and in the little city of Berea to begin what was a very great and significant work of New Testament evangelism there. And beloved, I want to say to you this morning, if there is anything, surely, that verses 1 through 9 that we read together and the following verses that we will look at next Sunday from verse 10 onwards, if there is anything that this passage tells us, it is to tell us that here is a window into what constituted New Testament evangelism. How the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ spread in New Testament days. 
And I would encourage you on these two Sundays and through the week intervening to read through the first and second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians in the New Testament because it will strike you again and again as you read those two letters that Paul later wrote to these churches that we read of this morning and next Sunday. It will strike you that what was outstanding in Paul's own mind about this mission and ministry was how the word of God came to these people in Thessalonica and Berea in the Holy Ghost and in power and in much assurance so that they were enabled to turn from idols to worship the living and the true God. And in fact, I suggest to you that in no other assembly in apostolic times do we find a greater simplicity and freshness and power of the truth of God spreading in a community than you do in the towns of Thessalonica and Berea. Now the importance, beloved, is this. As you and I wrestle with the question, how do I take the gospel to a modern technological age that is equally and everywhere as pagan as any New Testament ever was? How do I do it? Is there a new methodology? Is there a new secret for making the gospel more effective? Or should I learn from the example of New Testament evangelism here? And there are three things I suggest to you that characterize this great mission in Thessalonica. Now the first of all, first of all, I want you to notice with me that there was preparation for New Testament evangelism. Read verses 1 and 2 in your Bibles as they are open in front of you with me. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, we read, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scripture. Now let's just stop there and think about what Luke the historian is conveying to us in these two important and vital verses. That there was preparation, beloved, for New Testament evangelism before it ever began in the city, in a sense. Now you recall that Paul and Silas and Timothy had left Philippi and it's clear that they had left their companion, the doctor Luke, there in Philippi because the we passages of Acts end in chapter 16 for a while where you read in chapter 16, we went there and we did this and so on. You notice in verse 1, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Luke, you see, the writer of Acts, has now been left behind. But they traveled some 100 miles on foot from Philippi in a southwesterly direction along the great Via Ignatia, the Ignatian Way, one of the great Roman highways, as I told you last Sunday morning, that spanned the whole country of Greece from the Aegean Sea on the east to the Adriatic Sea on the west that separated Greece from Italy. It ran literally from east to west 
across the whole of Greece, and they traveled a hundred miles, passing by, you notice, the little cities of Apollonia and Amphipolis, illustrating again one of Paul's strategies in New Testament evangelism, that he tried where possible to concentrate on the great centers of population, leaving for a time the cities of less important places that would then be evangelized later by the churches he established in the great centers of population. So he came to Thessalonica, a very busy, bustling commercial city, a seaport, and situated right at the end of the great Roman road, the Via Egnatia, so that it had the benefit of all the trade landwards that passed through Greece and the benefit of all the sea trade that came into it as a port and was then taken, unloaded, and put on carts and sent across the great Roman highway to its destination. And here in this great, bustling, seaport, commercial, industrial city of Thessalonica, Paul and Timothy and Silas now arrive. Now, you read in these two verses that he was clearly well-received at first because on three Sabbath days, we read in verse 2, he reasoned with the Jews from the Scriptures. Now, here is the lesson that I am trying to enforce upon your minds. There was prior preparation for this great work of New Testament evangelism in the city of Thessalonica. Why do I say this? Because first of all, the Spirit of God, beloved, had gone before the Apostle and his companions into this pagan place. Now it's very easily overlooked because Luke doesn't directly mention this to us. But it is an essential truth of New Testament evangelism that we neglect today to our peril. Obviously, there was a preparatory work going on long before the apostle and his companions ever saw the buildings and the sheds of Thessalonica on the distant horizon. Long before they arrived, there was a work being done by the Spirit of God to prepare the way for the effective preaching of the gospel. Now, why do I say that? Because if you look back with me in chapter 16, verse 9, and do that for a moment in your Bibles, if you will. In chapter 16, verse 9, you have the account of that great Macedonian call to the apostle, the man of Macedonia, standing and pleading with him in the night vision, come over to Macedonia, to northern Greece, and help us. The haunting cry of a people in great need. Now, do you remember, my dear friends, what I said to you about that vision? It was not a particular individual so much as a representative figure that appeared to Paul. In other words, it was the voice of that whole area of ancient Greece pleading with the apostle and crying out in earnestness and desperation for the knowledge of the true way of salvation in Jesus Christ. 
And that man represented not just the need in Philippi in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, but the need in Thessalonica as well, and in Berea after it, and in Athens to the south also. So you see that these pagan regions, in spite of all appearances to the contrary, were in reality fields white unto harvest. And we need to grasp that with all our hearts. Why was Paul's mission in Thessalonica crowned with such biblical success? And the answer is the Spirit of God in prevenient grace had gone before his messengers to stir up the hearts of pagan people to awaken the conscience of pagans with spiritual desires after the true God so that in Philippi and then in Thessalonica and then in Berea long before any apostle was seen on the distant horizon in prevenient grace, the grace of God that goes beforehand, hearts and minds had been prepared. Men were becoming unsettled with the worship of idols, seeing through the falsity of it, unsatisfied in their deepest heart and mind with what it presented to them, filled with a sense of frustration and futility and a growing sense of need to find the truth. And you see, all of this we must attribute to the work of the Holy Spirit, plowing a furrow, preparing the soil, and causing something to happen in all kinds of different ways so that when the messengers came, the soil was already ready to a large extent for the reception of the blessed seed. Now, beloved, isn't it true in your own experience as you think of how you came to Christ? Can you not say in the words of the hymn writer, I sought the Lord? Yes, I did. But afterwards, I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. The Spirit of God preparing the hearts of men for successful New Testament evangelism. But do you notice secondly, and more quickly on this, that the Word of God was the other preparation for successful New Testament evangelism after the apostles first arrived in Thessalonica. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Paul was there reasoning and explaining the scriptures for three weeks in the synagogue. Now, why was this the practice of the apostle Paul? Not only because he believed in going to the Jew first, which he certainly did, but also because he knew that the word of God is that which breaks up the fallow ground of men's heart and renders it receptive to the gospel of God's grace. And you know, I have noticed again and again, and I remember particularly when I ministered in Scotland going as a guest preacher to another congregation other than my own, 
where a new ministry had started under a young man who taught from the scriptures consistently. And after the service, one of the elders of the session came to me and said, Mr. Dallison, under this man's ministry, I am finding out the meaning of God's will for my life for the first time. And this is what happens when the word of God is being truly and properly taught. It breaks up the fallow ground of men's heart so that the spirit and the word working together produce these effects. Now let me say again to you this morning, my friends in Christ, what concerns me so much about the modern church and is so worrying about it is that it seems the modern church is ready to do everything in terms of its evangelism except this. Isn't there a man-centered focus wherever you look? The church growth movement, I was reading an article that I passed on to my fellow elder just a few days ago on the church growth movement that has introduced new elements into evangelism. For instance, we must rework the morning service, say the church growth people, to make it more attractive to unbelievers. It must be overhauled and sig significantly modified. We must use contemporary music by groups rather than engage in congregational singing. We must not have Bibles that we expect people to take out and read or hymn books because everything must be projected on a screen up front just like an entertainment parlor. And the sermons must be practical and upbeat, I was reading, on some topic of human relationships, but not an exposition in a serious way of a text of Scripture. Oh, no! And that interest is sparked, mark you, by variety in activities, including drama and even clowns in a morning service and liturgical dance. And I'm not pulling your leg. This is what is happening, and even in some cases in the PCA. Now, whatever it may be, beloved, I suggest to you that it is not authentic New Testament evangelism. And I'm afraid the big front door that we are opening in often unbiblical ways, supposedly, to the unbeliever ends up in being a big back door out of the church. Because do you know what's happening in our denomination? 14,000 people were led into it last year and 13,000 left it. Now, beloved, however much we may desire the increase of numbers, we do not want to go about the work of God in a man-centered way that opens a big attractive front door but leads to a big open back door as a result. And I suggest to you that what we need to recover oh so urgently in this age in which we live is confidence in the means that God has made central for his church. However unattractive this may appear to be to the eyes of flesh, this is the means that God says, I will honor when the Spirit works in conjunction with the Word. Paul began there the work of preparation. 
Now, it goes on, doesn't it, this passage, to teach us some lessons in verses 2 and 3 about the procedure for New Testament evangelism. And again, it's very interesting, and I exhort you to do this, to read First and Second Thessalonians, where Paul reflects again and again on the type of ministry he exercised in Thessalonica. He says, even though we were shamefully treated in Philippi, we waxed bold when we came to you to share with you the gospel of God amid much conflict. So that, he says, the gospel came to you not in word only, but in the Holy Ghost and in power and in much assurance. And not, I suggest to you, by Paul clowning in the pulpit or having drama groups in the congregation or liturgical dancing in the worship auditorium. What did he do? Let me share three things that stand out from verses 2 and 3. The source and the manner and the content of Paul's procedure for New Testament evangelism. Look at the end of verse 2 for the source of Paul's procedure as he came with the gospel to Thessalonica. Where did Paul get his gospel from? It wasn't from the manuals of the church growth movement. And I believe there are good things that the church growth movement can teach us and we ought to learn from it. But where Paul got his gospel from ultimately, of course, is from the Lord. As he tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, he received it by revelation, not even from his fellow apostles. But practically, he tells us in verse 2, his gospel that he preached came from where? The scriptures. He reasoned with them from where? From the scriptures. In other words, from first to last, from beginning to end, his ministry among this people that was so crowned with biblical success and was so God-honoring was biblical and expository preaching. It was entirely biblical. And it wasn't preaching about himself. What a testimony Paul might have given to these men if he'd taken up his time describing blow by blow what had happened in Philippi and how he had been beaten along with Silas unjustly and thrust into the innermost prison and the earthquake. You think of what a testimony these men might have had. But they didn't share their testimony. And they didn't speak about their own sufferings, as we'll see in a moment, but about Christ's sufferings because the source of everything they did was from the Scriptures. And beloved, I believe, as I've said to you before, and I say it again, that if evangelical and biblical preaching is to profit the church, it must always be Bible-centered. We have no right to declare our own opinions, but only thus says the Lord. It is the Scripture but is the sword of the Spirit which pierces into the inmost heart of believer and unbeliever alike. That was his source. Now, do you notice in verses 2 and 3 also the manner in which he proceeded to preach the gospel? And there are three key words, very quickly. He reasoned with them. And the Greek word gives us our word dialogue or discussion or even argument 
where a discussion is taking place between two or more people. And it's very interesting in the ancient synagogue worship, unlike our services today, and I wish we had a format in one way for this kind of thing, there was actually interaction between the preacher and the congregation. Paul would say something and teach something from the scripture and there would be a question or there would be a disagreement raised. And using the Old Testament, it's clear that the Apostle Paul expounded and explained the scriptures in a way that answered the difficulties and the objections and the questions of his hearers. He listened to and responded and refuted their wrong views. There was reasoning. Now, beloved, where the gospel comes to men with power and with the Holy Ghost, there is a reasoned dealing with the mind. We do not first appeal to the emotions and get an emotional decision. We appeal to the mind and we reason with men because the truth itself is eminently reasonable. And then the second term he used is opening and explaining at the beginning of verse 3. And the Greek word is a word that means expand or force open. For instance, in Luke 2, verse 32, we have a quotation from the Old Testament that says, everything that opens the womb belongs to the Lord. And you can see the very thought there, the the same word, opening there, something that expands or forces open. And what is happening here, as Paul opened and explained the scriptures, is that he helped to expand the understanding of the audience in front of him. He expounded upon the sacred text. He elucidated it. He unfolded it. Almost the word is, he unraveled it. So that as they listened to him, their response was, wow, I see for the first time what I never saw there before. And that is the essence of the success, again, of New Testament evangelism. But the third term in verse 3, you notice, is proving. And again, that word in Greek, paratithemi, means to put alongside of. And what Paul evidently did is that he chose a passage from Isaiah that spoke about the work of of the Messiah. And he set it alongside another verse from Micah. And then he set those two verses alongside a passage from one of the Psalms that spoke of the kingdom of Christ or perhaps of his suffering or resurrection. And so he clinched his case. It was complete as he proved or set alongside one scripture with another. And the word almost suggests this Greek word paratithemi that he was setting before them a meal, spiritual food, soul food. And I trust that as you follow my expositions on Sunday mornings, you see these same characteristics of biblical preaching of the gospel. What is the procedure then for New Testament evangelism? In a nutshell, it is summarized by being an appeal to the understanding and the reason, not an assault violently upon people's emotions so you end up with something that is born in a day and dies in a day. And this is so important, isn't it? Look at verse 4. What happened when he did this? Some were what? 
cajoled into the kingdom of God? Emotionally led into the kingdom of God? No. They were persuaded. And the word has cognitive connotations. It refers to their mind being persuaded. Now, of course, it doesn't end there. Something that is merely intellectual is sterile and dead. But you can see they were persuaded because when the mind was enlightened with God's truth, the heart began to burn within them, just as Jesus, in a similar way, on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, shared with the disciples the scriptures and opened to them, the same word is used, the scriptures, so that their hearts began to burn within them. As a result of reasoning, there is biblical persuasion and all in the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, what a blessed result in any congregation where the pastor can say the gospel came to you not in word only, but in power and the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. Do you desire the Holy Spirit to come down in greater effectiveness in this congregation? I want to tell you that the scriptures testify everywhere that when he comes down in that way, he usually comes down on the truth. That's where he comes down, on the truth. The word in power that came with the Holy Ghost and with much assurance. Now, time almost fails me to speak of the content, the third thing, but look you, what was the content in verse 3? Christ having to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, you notice here that this message, so unacceptable to the Jews, who despised a crucified and suffering Savior, it was not in any way diluted by this faithful apostle, and yet we're told in the church growth movement, Take everything that is unacceptable out of the service so that unbelievers feel really comfortable in your midst. That's not biblical evangelism, beloved. You know what that is. It's humanism. And as it arose in a day, in my opinion, it deserves to perish in a day. We cannot improve on the means that God has given us for New Testament evangelism. And as Paul was there, you can imagine in that synagogue the growing excitement as the stranger urged upon his hearers the proofs of the all-important but objectionable and offensive centralities of the Christian faith from their very own scriptures in front of them. But their promised Messiah would be a suffering Messiah and that Jesus, having come, was that very one. That was the content of Paul's message to them. Now let me pass quickly on to the third and closing point that I want to share with you this morning. We've looked at the preparation for New Testament evangelism. We've looked briefly at the procedure for it. But what about the products of New Testament evangelism in verses 4 through 9? And the effects, I suggest to you, or the products, are as uniform and predictable as the method of preaching the gospel itself. It always does one of two things to its hearers. 
Either it melts their hard and unyielding hearts and brings them to faith in Christ, or else it stirs them up to yet more violent enmity and opposition. And there's no middle ground. Even as I am preaching the gospel to you in a sense this morning, it's having one of these two effects. It's either softening or it's hardening, just as the sun shining down melts wax or hardens clay. It is either a stone of stumbling to men or a sure cornerstone on which a new building is presently erected. We either build on it or we fall over it to our ultimate and lasting destruction. There is either the hearing of faith or there is the hatred of unbelief. And wherever you look in the New Testament, there is no neutrality. It is one or the other. If the gospel comes to men's hearts in the power of God, and we should not be afraid of either of these because both are biblical. Now look quickly. Some were persuaded in verse 4, some Jews and a large number of God-fearing Gentiles. In other words, for some, God granted the hearing of faith very graciously. And we read in the Thessalonian epistle, the mightiness of God's work, never underestimated. It is a miracle of grace when someone turns from darkness to light, from the worship of idols to the worship of the living and true God, when there is a radical change at the heart of a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, when repentance causes them to turn from their old ways to wait for the coming Savior from heaven, as Paul says in the letter to the Thessalonians, when the real world, beloved, is no longer the world around you, but the eternal world of spiritual realities that does not deal in perishables at all. That's what the gospel does. That's what saving faith, beloved, brought them to when they were persuaded that Jesus was their true Messiah. They turned from everything else to rest upon him alone for their salvation. And incidentally, Paul, we learn later in Acts, gained some of his closest Christian friends who were with him in the hour of need from Thessalonica. But look you secondly at those who oppose the gospel in verses 5 through 9. If there is not the response of the hearing of faith, there is bound to be the response of the hatred of unbelief. Luke says they became jealous, these Jews. Paul tells us in his Thessalonian letters in some detail that they are contrary to all men, these Jews, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So it shows that the Jews opposed his message, not just because of the preaching of Jesus, the suffering Messiah, but because the very prerogatives and rights of the Jews were being infringed. And there is the tragedy. This nation that was set up in the Old Testament to be a light to the world that had alone the knowledge of the true God in the midst of the surrounding heathen blackness of idolatry. This nation that should have been a burning and a shining light when it saw the gospel going to the heathen tried to stop it. That's the tragedy of Israel again and again, isn't it? 
And so they went into the marketplace, we read, and they got all the loafers and the idlers and the crooks and the criminals there that are always waiting for a moment of excitement in their misspent lives. And there was a city-wide riot. Beloved, do you realize that when the gospel comes in power, there are men who will go out of a church as well as men who will come into it. And the reason is, as they correctly said, these Thessalonians, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and there is another king, one called Jesus. Do you see what they're saying, really? The revolutionaries are here. And in a sense, it was a backhanded compliment, wasn't it, to Paul and the power of the gospel that he preached. In the King James Version, it says they turned the world upside down. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but that's not the correct rendering. But what it does say is the men who've caused trouble all over the world are here. And I want to say to you as I finish this morning, Christianity, dear friends, is revolutionary. And I cannot make it sweeter for you, even if I wanted to. Its very aim, in a sense, is to turn the world upside down. And the reason is, of course, because it finds the world the wrong way up to start with. And what a blessing it is that the world come, the gospel comes and turns the world the right way up. It is a dynamic thing. Wherever it went, you read in the New Testament, it did something. And as I finish this morning, would to God it had the same result today. In this age, when alas and alack, the church too often walks hand in hand with the world. Isn't that our problem? And what is urgently needed is this same central, loving, but powerful word of God in the gospel to be a revolutionary force in writing men's lives and society today. And it always begins with the individual. It's always a mistake to start a revolution in society. It begins the true revolution individually as men's hearts and lives are changed. So then society is changed because something has come amongst us that turns the upside-down world the right way up and another king begins to be served who is the only true and rightful king of all of us. Well then, what a record. Driven out of Antioch, persecuted in Iconium, stoned in Lystra, flogged in Philippi, imprisoned in the innermost dungeon of all, and having to flee to Thessalonica. What would our church growth friends make of a missionary like this? Beloved, he was not a failure, was he? The work he planted in just three weeks lasted 
into being one of the sweetest of all the churches of the New Testament, a church built practically in three weeks. And just a glance at the Thessalonian letters tells you what quality of Christians he was building. That's New Testament evangelism. And God give us the grace and the patience to work through whatever trials may beset us here if we can be found much in the main things, the preparation for New Testament evangelism, the procedure for it, the product of it. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to learn from these things that we've dealt with so inadequately this morning and bless us as we continue to meditate on this passage. For Jesus' sake, amen.